Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alarm, alarm. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. You right, Jim? <laughs> Just a bow. Merry Christmas. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, you're listening to this on Boxing Day. Of course, yeah, we've recorded Merry this. Christmas, absolutely. Yes, we've recorded I've this. recovered by then. Yeah, well, you'll be, I'll be full of goose i think i think i'm cooking a goose well i know but we're actually recording this in the middle of december yeah, having had a, just a very fraught train ride yeah multiple yeah. train ride i thought it would be easy for you to go oh, you'd have thought so wouldn't you yeah but we are we are in the buttery which is the bar of st edmund hall oxford which is my alma mater yeah i know and, it's uh, fantastic i can just picture you here in the bar with hair <laughs> roistering <laughs> And Reg the barman. Le- and leading all the students a merry dance. Well, yeah. And the, the beer was, eight, I think, 84p a pint. Yeah, you see Webster's. You see, up north in Durham. Yeah. Pint of Webster's in the St. Chad's College bar is 50p. Well, that's it, that you, could, you could buy 16 pints for them. how much it costs a single pint in London. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, imagine. Everyone was so generous at rounds back then. <laughs> but what we have in here is uh, there are oars on the ceiling from, yes. from, uh, from the bumps mainly and the t- men's torpids and there's photographs of various teams. The gymnasts over there in, with just their shorts on and uh, a women's hockey team, f- which overlaps from when I was here with Claire Rhodes James in it, who, whose father was Richard Rhodes James, yes. who wrote Chinned It that yeah, we republished right. last year or the year before last year. Yeah, nice. But that's not why we're here. No. We're not here for me to reminisce, thank God. I oh, know I'm quite up for it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, particularly since we're in the bar. No, no we're we're here we're here to talk. And um, what's your full title? That's the the thing we always have to do with academics. My title is fellow by special election in German. There we go. We're here to talk. Wow, fellow by special election in German. We're here to talk to Alex from the White Rose Project. Now, does that mean you were specially elected in German, or? <laughs> Yeah, let's say that. Well, let's say that. that. Oh, actually, you know what? How would one say that in German? Because we're quite we're yes, because because that that's an eat sheet and leaves moment, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. How do you say it's, how do you say your title in German, Alex? Well, my title wouldn't exist in Germany. Oh, right. <laughs> um, but I would be a, a professorin or a docentin. Oh, lovely. Oh, I love a bit German, don't you, Jim? <laughs> Not a general but, but, plenipotentiary of We're not going down that. Uh, what was it? The Befehlshaber. The Befehlshaber. Unterbootsand, whatever it is. Unterbootsand. Anyway, anyway. 
But we're here to talk about the White Rose Project, which is your study, your project, the book from the year before last that you wrote. Uh, we were just chatting before Jim got here about how you wrote that during during the pandemic. So so it's a work of not of the archive and the library, but of but of responding to the subject in itself. And I think what we could do, first of all, is talk about the White Rose in itself and then what the what the project is, but also your field of study, Jim. I haven't told you yet what Alex's field is. What's your field of study, Alex? Because we were talking about this a moment ago and it's just so cool. Yeah, so I always feel like I should preface things by saying I'm not a historian. Um, which Nor is not, I, so. not an, <laughs> Which is not an apology. But f- from my discipline and my training, I'm not in history. I'm in German studies. Um, so I'm a Germanist, um, which is, which is a great German word that we've co-opted in English. Yeah, it's so good. Um, but basically, what it means is that I basically study the language and all the culture of Germany. Wow, 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 wow. I've just been thinking so much about propaganda in the 1930s. Well, the there's plenty to be getting on with in the language and culture of Germany. That's, that's <laughs> well, that's 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 yes. How long have you got? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, we, 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 the bar <laughs> opens at five, I think. Uh, but the White Rose in itself, what people may know about, the, because after all, what we're looking at here, what's really interesting about the White Rose is it's one of those things that exists in the popular imagination. Yeah as much as it does in in history. People know about Sophie Scholl. They've heard of her. They know the story roughly. If you you watch a documentary about, you know, the the Nazis in the Second World War, there will be a bit about the White Rose, about about how they defied the Nazis. They printed their leaflets. And and she's the symbol of it, which is interesting because it's it's her and and five men, her brothers and their friends and one of the professors at, at the university. Yet it's she's become the f- the face of it, which I think is bound up in all sorts of things as well. I've got to say that you know, um, for all the kind of terrible horrors of the Second World War, one of the things that I find most traumatic is every time I see a photograph of Sophie Scholl looking sort of young and fresh faced with her life ahead of her, and the thought of her being guillotined four days after arrested is is just it's so grotesque and so horrible and so traumatic. Yeah, it's you know, in many ways, it's the banality of evil hannah arendt talks about and the sheer speed i mean the speed of the resistance activities themselves you know they start producing pamphlets in june 1942 by february half of the core group is dead yeah you know it's it's incredibly quick and it's incredibly quick from them being arrested so hans and sophie scholl were arrested on a thursday in their university you know which is amazing to think of we sit here in the bar in a university, you know, where I come in and work every day. The idea that you could just be in your university as a student on a Thursday and by Monday you're being guillotined. Yeah, it's absolutely horrible. And, you know, I curse Jacob Schmidt. Yes. The maintenance man, the janitor. Yeah. The staff here are really nice, though, Joe. I just want to line, <laughs> just want to line it. All the staff here at Teddy Hall are great people. And <laughs> they're not the kind of people who would dob us in. I just want to, we need to get that out there right now. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it is, it is, it's a fascinating story, though, isn't it? Because, because there's a bigger group as well. It's not, it's not just the five of, or the six of them. It's not, it's not just the core group. Because in April of 43, another dozen at least are put on trial, aren't they? And, and also run foul of the, people's court but what's really interesting is two of the men her brother's been to the eastern front so he knows what's going on in the way that lancer knew what was going on in the east the leaflets mention the mass murder of of jews they talk about that but also draw on german cultural tradition german ideas of uh, philosophical ideas 
Um, they draw on Thomas Newton. They draw on all, all, all sorts of people, don't they? I mean, it's fascinating what's in the mix, yes? Yeah. Do, do you think we should just do a very quick kind of sort of two-minute... Yes, go on, What's then. it all about? Yes, let's do that. Yes. Yeah, right. Go on. <laughs> Fine. So the White Rose, yeah, the White Rose was absolutely a really broad network of individuals that took in students but also academics and also individuals who were intellectuals artists who were basically oppositional to the regime based in munich most of them based in munich but there was also a cell of the white rose in hamburg um, and the leaflets made their way across germany and also into austria so it had quite a decent reach yeah into at least half a dozen cities yeah but the later leaflets went went a long way didn't they yeah, yeah. they went to salzburg i think yeah. they also went to vienna and they wrote these pamphlets didn't they and there was sort of six of them is that right but then there was a seventh yeah so there were six printed pamphlets right. so there were four in the space of about two weeks in 1942 in the summer there's then a hiatus because, as you said, Al, so um, Hans Scholl, Willi Graf, and Alexander Schmorell, who were conscripted medical students, so they basically were sent in the university vacations to the front. So they go to the Eastern Front in the summer back. For which your holidays, is, that's yeah, incredible. right? It's just, it's absolutely unthinkable. I mean, that's, not a, that's not going to Thailand, is it? No. <laughs> it's not backpacking on a gap year, is it? Jesus Christ. Yeah, so off they go to the Eastern Front for three months. When they come back, there's a greater sense of urgency and so they write two more pamphlets january february of 1943 there is a draft of a of what would have been a seventh pamphlet which hans scholl had on him when he was arrested and this basically led to the arrest of christoph probst who was another member of the group who had written that draft and what are the leaflets saying they're they're calling on the conscience of germans aren't they and and saying this we should surely must be ashamed of our german government right now if we're decent germans are surely ashamed of what's going on what's the tone of them they are fascinating precisely because they do a bunch of different things at the same time and i always say this with the greatest of respect to my undergraduate students but they're written by undergrads they're written by students and in some ways you can see that but they're basically trying to mount an argument to convince their readers to open their eyes to what's going on and then increasingly trying to get them to take action so they call on them to engage in sabotage to engage in forms of resistance and to confront to confront what the nazi regime is doing yeah and drawing on all sorts of german philosophical and literary tradition as well yeah so in, uh, like, in, like undergrads like undergrads well, yeah might well again know. with all due respect to my <laughs> lovely students um you know we're all guilty of doing this sometimes you know somebody else has said it better so you whack a quote in and that's what they do so the first pamphlet has a really long quotation from johann wolfgang von goethe and friedrich schiller mm-hmm. so like totemic daddies of german literature yeah. these are the guys that if you want to justify your position as a german to other well, Germans. It's if, if you were writing the British leaflet, what a piece of work is man, is what you, exactly. you'd, you'd resort yeah. to Shakespeare and exactly. King James Bible. Yeah, that's exactly what you do. And so they, they grab Goethe and they grab Schiller and they use those texts as a way of basically supporting the argument. So they write their own stuff first and then the leaflet essentially ends with these big quotes. They then kind of surprisingly reach for a more diverse range of quotations. So they do quote from the Old Testament, but they also quote from ancient Chinese philosophy. Okay. Wow. Which is fascinating. Like most also just showing off their intellectual... Well, isn't, isn't one of them a Buddhist? Am I right in thinking that? Um, so Christoph Pope's father was really interested in Buddhism. I can't recall whether he in- 
fact was, but he was really interested. Um, he w researched Sanskrit. He was, yeah, not kind of towing the line in as much as, you know, there's a Nazi Weltanschauung yeah. and, and that's what you've got to kind of conform to. Uh, where, where are they writing? Are they sort of getting together in their digs and kind of sort of going, here's a thought? I mean, how's it? <laughs> Basically, it, it, Presumably, yeah. <laughs> it's a conversation on the way back from Russia, Actually, isn't well, it? This is a question worth asking. How old are they? So they're in their early 20s. Right, OK. So the absolute prime... Yeah. student material yeah. and why are they of the mind to rebel because you know what i've read is they identify the fact that they're being that german youth is being ideologically sort of kettled into ways of thinking and baked as it were and why are they why do they possess the capacity to stand outside that or rebel what's in that is it religion is it is it their upbringing what's what's going on i mean it's the million dollar question why do they do it when so many others don't and why do they do it in the way that they do it i think it's it's partly faith they were all christians of one denomination or another and i think they take that very seriously to a greater or lesser extent and it does make a difference to their sort of moral development they're also all incredibly cultured i mean they play musical instruments they read reams of literature and philosophy they read russian literature which you know is not what they're supposed to be reading one of them speaks russian doesn't he? um alex Shmarel, yeah he was a fluent russian speaker his mother was russian um he was raised by a russian nanny in germany so you know obviously so he's him, able to talk to people on the ostfront about what's yeah going on. and he actually introduces hans and Vili to the russian people that they spend time with so they engage with the enemy and as soon as you engage with them, you realise that they're just ordinary human beings yeah, like you and, and me, and they're the, not sort of... Yeah, this propaganda... Exactly, the propaganda, the Soviet... Uh, the Sorry, the Nazi propaganda about the Soviets is just, you know... But they're also against persecuting the Jews, aren't they? Yeah. So they Which is a sort of, a, you know, a really, really crucial point in the it's, whole thing. It's like a kind of... I think we can understand it kind of like a, an advocacy for others, because the White Rose members themselves are not being actively persecuted, right? They're acceptable. The Scholls were in the Hitler Youth... Yeah and rose through the ranks and were to all intents and purposes very enthusiastic. Willi Graf, who was one of the other mm. students, he was more oppositional from an earlier age. He was Catholic. The Nazis banned all non-Hitler youth youth groups, which really wound people like Willi up um, because there had been Catholic youth groups previously. But these were young people who were who were not being actively persecuted. Yeah, so, so it's empathy for others. It's, so it's, it's empathy for others. outside their own, own direct interest. Yeah, it's the prick of conscience to see other people suffering yeah. and to kind of put yourself in their shoes and to do something about it on behalf of those who can't. Um, one, of the, one of the leaflets says, conscience is, gives us the capacity to distinguish between good and evil, So, which is as, as direct a... a call to moral arms as you as you could possibly have i mean one thing that's really striking in your description of why are they called the white rose that that's the <laughs> scholars are divided <laughs> of course um, they are <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty that could pretty much be my answer to every question of the white rose <laughs> so which tells do, you do, a lot is it, isn't it the novel so it could be that hans scholl was reading a, a spanish novel um called la rosa blanca it could also be a reference to the virgin mary it could also be a reference to french revolutionaries wearing a white flower in their lapels hans scholl is asked exactly that question in one of his gestapo interrogations right, still, still divided well well yeah well, he's a bit vague about it isn't he he's a he bit vague to... about it in the, right. in the interrogation and also you know we have to be a little bit careful with those transcripts because they're because they're being written by the gestapo and not by the victims but he's quite vague but he says something like you know we wanted a name that would kind of feel like it might have something political behind it but that wasn't sort of 
too political. Um, so they want a banner to put themselves under. Although they drop the name, interestingly, after Leaflet 4. Um, so when they come back in the January and make the fifth leaflet, they call themselves the resistance movement in Germany. Mm. So they, they kind of reposition themselves as something much up more, yeah, up a notch, something that much suggests... Much more of a statement of intent. Yeah. And that's after Stalingrad, of course. So, so, uh, that, so that one's just before Stalingrad. Just, it's just before Stalingrad. That's January. Right, yeah. okay. So Stalin, but well, Stalingrad... after the defeat. Yeah, yeah. But yes, defeat. The, the defeat of Stalingrad yeah. impacts on their activities as well, doesn't it? Yeah. It gives it greater impetus and, and, and relevance. I mean, one of the things that's really striking when you're we're talking about them is a thread that people often pursue when they talk about Nazi Germany is to go, how could this happen in the most cultured country in the world? Mm. You know, Germany's the most cultured country in the world. How did they... Which I... I really don't like this line of argument because I always think that's junk, that way of looking. Germany's the most cultured country in the world. How did it end up? It's that, I always feel that that's a way of, a sleight of hand way of attacking culture. This is the idea that, you, you know what I mean? It's a way of being sniffy about culture. We don't need culture here and it keeps us sensible. It, it's the sort of doughty John Bull way of looking at that argument, I think. But also that somehow if you're cultured, you're more moral. But, but my point is, here are really cultured people and their response is... Is, is to say, no, we're not, yeah. we, we can't have anything to do with this. And also, I can give you a good example of this in, in relation to the White Rose, which is the Gestapo commissioned an academic at the University of Munich. So one of Professor Kurt Huber's colleagues was commissioned to analyse the pamphlets right. just before the arrests. So he wrote this report, basically analysing the language as a way for the Gestapo to, to then figure out, who it was. figure out who it was. It's like, you know, it's like... Criminal profiling thing. How amazing. And, and he is exactly the kind of guy that should have responded to the intellectual and cultural arguments in those pamphlets. He has the, the breadth of knowledge to understand the biblical references in them, the cultural references, the Goethe, the Schiller. And he, and he identifies them all, but they don't, they don't move him. They don't mean, mean anything to him. Gosh, So it speaks to him on an intellectual level, yeah. but it doesn't... But not on a moral it doesn't level. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I mean, one of the things that's so fascinating about, about propaganda is if you say stuff... Well, I remember talking to Charlie Higson. He was like saying that the, the secret of of the fast joke was... Repetition. Repetition. You just, you just say, today I am mostly wearing, and yeah. you just say it over and over and again, it becomes funny. Yeah. Uh, and... Familiarity. Familiarity. And yeah. it's the same principle, isn't it? With, with, with Gobelian... Um, is that a word? You know what I mean. Um, if it's the propaganda not, it should of be. Goebbels. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's repetition. And it's really interesting because cause a, a good friend of mine over in the US was, was telling me how... His, I mean, he's a absolute anti-Trumper, uh, and his parents came up, and they are now retired in Florida and live on a diet of Fox News. And Fox News said that the problem with the Biden administration is all the food's going up, and turkeys now cost ninety dollars. And my friend was saying, no, that isn't true, and they wouldn't have it. So eventually, he got out the wrapper of the turkey and said, look, it says twenty nine dollars, and they wouldn't believe it, yeah. even though there in front of their eyes was twenty nine dollars. So it goes <laughs> to show that the sort of sane people. All around the world, if you tell them enough stuff, they'll, they'll, they'll believe it. And, and this is what the Nazis are absolutely brilliant well, at. Well, they're brilliant at culture. Not yeah. capital C culture, the opera. They know how to tweak the right Well, yeah, and, the, and right the, the, the conversation, the, the national, I mean, you could call it the national conversation. They're brilliant. They're, yeah, you know, and they co-opt things. They co-opt Goethe. They make Goethe a figurehead for the National Socialist cause for nationalism. So it's oh, then interesting when people like the White Rose re, you know, repurpose that. Yeah. as evidence not of yes the correctness of the nazis but of the actual opposing view so i mean one of the one of the one of the things i think that interesting about the white rose is they they are regarded as the example of resistance 
In Nazi Germany, I can see you, you're, you're bracing yourself. <laughs> I have to for arrange, this. sorry, I have to arrange my face. Well, they? They're, 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 they're seen as, they're, they're, they're all, as I said earlier, yeah. they're, they're, if you watch a program about the Nazis, you get them as the resistance. Yeah. But primarily because of Sophie Scholl. And I think you're right, Jim. I think it's. Because she's the, pretty and young, fresh faced, and she had a head yeah, chopped off. And, and she's it, a woman. And, and she's, she's a woman. woman. And it, so if, if you want your symbolism packaged up, it's, it's, it's right there for you. And, and she's somehow. There's an innocence, right? Yeah. Right. Because Kurt Huber was a conservative middle-aged academic who was working at a state-controlled university. All four of the student, male students, were conscripted. Yeah. Right? They were all on the front. They were wearing Nazi uniforms. Yeah. Sophie Scholl is the only one that you can actually, like, visually separate from all of that. Yeah. In a way that isn't actually a reflection of reality. You know, she was also studying at a state-controlled university. But I think there's something about Sophie being able to be separated out of that narrative in a quite reductive way. It's it's, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because the Stauffenberg plot, the the, the people always have to qualify it. They have to qualify him. They have to qualify who they are. They have to go, but actually, you know, they're all like rancid nationalists anyway. And what they want is a war on Bolshevism. They just want to stop fighting the Western Allies because that's that's surely our common cause, all all that sort of stuff. And so... Even the July plot has to be has to be qualified and has to be and you you don't have to do that with the white rose with with Sophie Scholl no. as you've just said the imagery of her allows you to allows you to not you know there's not there's not a, you don't have to show a photo of them in their uniforms to talk about the white rose with Stauffenberg you you're stuck with the fact that you know the, a lot of the people around are pretty unsavoury he's pretty he's no saint is he so does this mean and this we're drifting now to towards your briar patch. Does this mean that the where do the white rose sit in German uh, self view of the a cultural self view of the Second World War? I mean, the white rose are already being commemorated really early. So even before the end of World War Two, they're being talked about on the BBC German service. Right. So Thomas Mann gave a speech in the summer of forty three mm-hmm. about yeah about you know praising uh, Hans and Sophie and Christoph for their act of bravery, which in a way is remarkable. There are already two novels that are published, one in German, one in English, right after the end of the Second World War, about the White Rose, or based on the story of the White Rose. So there's something I think really interesting about how this group starts to get institutionalized in cultural memory really early. Yeah. Inga Scholl, one of the siblings of Hans and Sophie, she published a book called The White Rose in, I think, 52. That also served to really kind of cement the role of the Scholls, particularly. You know, we're talking about Sophie being a figurehead for the movement. That's partly how that happens. And then, of course, Germany's divided. So the reception history of this group is necessarily quite different. They're commemorated quite centrally in East Germany, which I think in some ways is quite surprising. You know, they're very middle class. They are the educated middle class. They are intellectual. They are not, you know, what, what marks them out as an inner German resistance group is that they're not communists. Yeah. And yet they can be utilized they're in East Germany. They're sufficiently anti-fascist though. They're anti-fascist, so it's okay. Yeah. And yeah. you can elide a bunch of stuff. You know, you can you can just let a bunch of stuff go and it doesn't matter. I think in West Germany, they become especially important because they tell a different story about what happened. You know, in post-war West Germany, we develop a narrative about collective guilt and responsibility and perpetratorship yes. as public knowledge of the extent yep. of the crimes of the Holocaust becomes known. So to have an example like the White Rose 
allows us to see in that context something that is that is almost redemptive yeah we're going to take a very quick break um and return to that thought because um james is champing at the bit to say something as am i (laughs) (laughs) this episode is brought to you by twizzlers long day late night feeling a little bored Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Um, Boxing Day here at St. Edmund Hall. Not well ish virtual boxing day and, and we're, we're talking about the white rose jim you you had a question go on yeah well i was going to put, say that so the redemptive the, the redemptive quality that the white rose offers german west german people in the in the 50s and 60s is is, is where we'd got to yeah i suppose i was almost going to make a sort of counterpoint which is is that it just goes to prove that you don't have to be fall in line with the nazi nazi way of thinking because that clearly there are people who don't well, straight back at you. Not very many. Is the, is well, the, yeah, yes, is the, is the other yes. thing it offers evidence of. <laughs> yes, not very many. But 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 you know, the, the whole argument is is did the Germans have a choice? You know, were they just brainwashed? You know, were they all? You know, were they all in a kind of stupor for for twelve years? This is the counter argument on that, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, where's the where's the line? And I, you know, I was I was saying I was saying to Al earlier that you know I'm I'm always extremely conscious as a Germanist as a what in German we call an Auslandsgermanist, so um, literally someone who does German studies from beyond Germany. Yes. Right? I'm I'm British, I'm I have no German connections. And so I always feel quite sensitive, especially when talking to students who don't you know, who can't understand how this was possible. Yeah. You know, how do you how do you navigate that? And I think a useful way of doing it is to just turn it back on yourself and your own social context yes right even though it's not comparable in lots of ways we don't want to draw reductive historical parallels but there is a there is a danger when we when we look at that period of history and we ask those questions that we kind of judge it with an ahistorical moral view yes well i mean Um, it sort of points at that question that you know what would i have on the rawest level which is and this is a popular cultural question what would i have done and everyone assumes they everyone says well i'd have resisted yeah. Um, of course yeah. I would. Obviously, the repost is the hell you would. Absolutely. But yeah, you look at you like, well, obviously that was evil. You know, obviously yeah. I would do something yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. Self evidently evil, isn't it? So then where where did the because after all, as you've said, Germany's divided and then mm. and then and Germany re- remains divided ideologically, socially, politically, in, and then and then isn't anymore. So where do the where do the white rose then you know where do they bob up in the sort of in the new or new 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 Germany because you know, yeah, in, yeah, the, in, the, in many in the, many Germanies yeah in the Berlin Republic of yeah. post nineteen ninety I mean so in the early two thousands there was this little boom of of films about Nazi Germany basically all sorts of different films so Downfall mm-hmm. was probably the most famous but there was also a film about Sophie Scholl Sophie Scholl the Final Days. And that was really popular and I think did a lot to kind of revivify the White Rose in the kind of popular imagination. Yeah. Um, also, there were a number of documents that were discovered after the wall fell. 
so that film was also able to kind of legitimize itself by saying you know we're using New real evidence. transcripts yeah. we've got real evidence you know these are the these are the real words of of these historical actors interestingly it puts again sophie scholl front and center which i think we we welcome because you know how many stories are we telling about women and the resistance not that many but at the same time it it risks well, reducing uh, what was all, it's her brother initiates the she finds out about her brother and joins the group yeah. isn't it is the is the way round the the, the actual sequence that's of events the, that's the most likely sequence yeah, of yeah, events pro, pro, yeah. yes of course because we don't because we don't know there are there are suggestions that she yeah. that she knew about it earlier but but that's the, that seems to be the most likely yeah. that film then put sort of brings the story back recenters yeah. her and there's a there's a load of uh, because because I think Downfall's an interesting movie you know because he's a Swiss actor after all they, they don't cast a German because you're not going to be able to it gives it some distance. It gives it some distance. It gives it the necessary necessary gap you need, yeah. and it's presented as if you're watching Downfall. I, I, the thing is, I can't imagine what it's like to be German watching Downfall in the early two thousands, ten so, years after a, a reunited Germany. I can't do. I so can't do the, I saw it in the cinema when it came out because I was on my undergrad year abroad, living in Germany. And I've never ever been to a film where there was silence at the end. So when the when the credits rolled, everyone just sat in silence in their seats. Wow. wow! It was wow, wow, wow. it was astonishing, and I and I've never I've never Did you experienced talk to that. About it? No, I mean I I would get, basically I would go to the cinema by myself to watch all these yeah. all yeah. these World War Two films because <laughs> that's what I thought was interesting. Um, I was like clearly gearing up for my future life, um, but it was it was just stunning. It was you know. So that, I think that's what it and was then, probably like you know, for Germans well, yes, watching it. Because I think that the scene in the scene in that that will I mean the. Obviously, there's the meme scene now. That, that, <laughs> that's that's buffet. Yeah, exactly. It's become. It's become. It's, again, it's it's interesting. It, these things escape, don't they? Yeah. Like? And that scene's escaped the film. Yeah. To the point where the directors tried to. They keep trying to get it shut down. That meme, but it's escaped. It's 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 run off. Um, the scene. The scene in the film where, where the Goebbels family, where the Goebbels family are murdered. You know, that's the that's I think the bit in the film where we escape carpet chewing Hitler. And if anything, it's metaphorical, isn't it? This is what Germany's done to itself. Mm. This is what's this is what's happened in the country, and that's it, it, towards the end of the movie. I think is really it's an incredibly powerful and upsetting moment in a way that some of the Hitler scenes almost feel like they're played. They almost played for entertainment. He's crazy and he's out of touch and and he's ridiculous and absurd and uh, and that they're in the they're in the grip of the madman. Mm. Whereas those later scenes show what the madness actually amounts to. Yeah, it's the con- it's the consequence. Yeah, like I said, I can't imagine what it's like being German w- watching those, mm. and it's, you have that Auslander Germanist distance. Yeah. What do you think was happening in Germany at the time that there were those though those films? What was going on culturally? So I think, I think in the early nineties culturally there was a lot more focus on reunification. Yeah. And there was a lot more kind of turning towards interrogating the recent divided past. And then around the mid nineties you get a couple of quite high profile works that are examining the role of perpetrators. So it's an interesting almost return to that kind of collective mm-hmm. guilt yeah. argument of the West German post-war period. And then in the early 2000s, that shifts again, and you get this huge surge of publications and TV programs all about the idea of, of Germans as victims of World War II. So German suffering as a result of the Allied bombings, the advance of the Soviet army, which is a really fascinating shift. Yes. And then German resistance has to somehow be positioned 
within that. But there's a huge amount of criticism of that that German victimhood discourse yeah. for obvious reasons. Yeah. But, but then, Alex, you, get, you then get a dozen years after downfall, you then get Look Who's Back. Oh, yeah. yeah Which everyone loved. I mean, you know, it sold millions. It was, yeah. it was almost like there's a collective sigh of relief that <clears throat> actually we can laugh about this. German comedy, though. That's exactly the next thing I was going to bring up. <laughs> I mean, because it, it, it is incredible how popular it is, and it is incredible how popular documentaries about the Second World War are now in Germany. Oh, yeah. I've done so many for ZDF it's like Guido Knopp who was the who was basically pumping out like Hitler's there's a, there's a comedy song about Guido Knopf and yeah. how he produces all these Nazi documentaries like Hitler's Hitler's Helfer Hitler's Frauen Hitler's Letzte Sekretärin yeah, yeah well I've been in some um, yeah you see <laughs> you can you can get a you can get a big sort of glossy book about kind of you know pictures of Messerschmitt's in you can get that published in Germany you can get a kind of sort of absolute bilge but popular narrative history about the Second World War as a British historian you just can't get it. Can't get it done. The only person I, I know of who's published over there is Anthony Beaver. Max Hastings is and no one else is. Really? No, just, is just not for love and money. I'd give them to, to publish, but they... <laughs> they won't do it. Won't do it. <laughs> worth the paper, Jim. Not worth the paper. <laughs> can't be doing it. No, don't want to know. And actually, I'm quite nice about Germans. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe, maybe that's your problem. <laughs> yes, indeed. I'm quite generous to some of those U-boat captains. Yes, you are. Quite generous to those U-boat captains. <laughs> You know, I draw the line at Hitler, obviously. And <laughs> I mean, when you're teaching this, what do students? How do students? Modern students, because because a thing, and it's a thing we've talked about a lot on the podcast over the years. Is you know, I I I, I was born in 1968. I grew up in the 70s, where it was war films on Bank Holiday Monday, Airfix, Action Man, a sort of uh, khaki glamour, the, the Battle of Britain movie. You know, those very strong, very strong cultural. Currents. Our grandparents had all had all done something in the war. My mum would go on about there being no bananas, you know, that that sort of thing. You're but, putting too much butter on your toast. Exactly, and all that, and clean your plate, and you know, we had to eat the family rabbit and all this sort of stuff, <laughs> right? Family pig in my case. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Doing, clearly doing better than. <laughs> anyway, um, but someone born in two thousand and five. Yeah, they're even younger. They're even younger. Exactly, they're even younger than, the, than I can possibly imagine. Where do you pin their set of cultural references because we you know my i have two grown-up daughters they did a level history so they did a level nazis and they stop in 1939 there is no second world war so no. you could you, you could tell them it went any in any direction and they'd, they'd believe you right well because you know they're on the, the nazis are on a roll in 1939 it looks like they, it looks like things are going well for them <laughs> the way the a levels taught <laughs> but, but isn't it all call of duty and, and netflix well, but series? there's also call of duty netflix series. but so so if you've got a student from, this is a very going around the houses with this question if you've got a student from 2005 how do you how do you get them to locate the war culturally because you talked about them as undergraduates is that how you do it you say here are, here are some students here's the pickle they're in here's what they're doing yeah i think i think we come at it i mean the the, the white rose project has come at this really through translation principally so you know one of the things i teach more than anything else is translation from german to english and so the white rose project was originally conceived of as a translation project to translate the white rose resistance pamphlets and I think, like I said, you know, I work on German culture. I'm yeah. interested in how stories in the past are consumed and, and transmitted through film and literature and museums. And that's also what I'm kind of mostly doing with my students. And we're doing that kind of through this filter of translation. So we're looking at the original German material, but then we're... There's the fridge again. It's great, that fridge. As long as we tell the listeners. The bar's not even open. <laughs> it's a tragedy. 
<laughs> so so we're doing this through translation and we're finding ways to to kind of transport these stories these lives these ideas from german into english and that process in itself necessitates a huge amount of engagement with you know historical fact but also you know what are the what are the books that the white rose are reading that might influence the way that they end up writing or the quotes that they use and i think the students that i work with on the project are are pretty critically aware about the way that stories historical narratives get packaged up in netflix series or you know i think i think they're quite canny actually this generation in a, in a funny way and in a way i think that we sometimes don't expect yes um i think they are quite canny about the need to interrogate you know they, they know what fake news is and they know they've got to navigate it well and particularly with a with a story that's pre- been presented boldly as heroic i mean the, the, the one thing we're we're told to question culture now is heroes isn't it the idea of yeah. you know, the idea of heroes heroes and icons heroes yeah. and icons and I mean, we keep touching on it. She's Sophie Scholl is iconic. One, yeah, one way, one absolutely. way or another. She's uh, in Madame Tussauds in Berlin. Is she? Yeah, she's next to Anne Frank. Because well, you see, it's very interesting. You, because I was going to say um, when you talked about um, her sister writing a book in like '52. You know, the Anne Frank memoir uh, uh, diaries are out quite early in the 50s aren't they yeah although interestingly Anne Frank's diary in West Germany is popularised not through the diary but through the stage play adaptation so it's interesting that actually it's an adaptation of of her own writing that makes her popular initially in the West I mean it's interesting there's been some I mean there's been some interesting series and films recently haven't there I mean you think about sort of um, what was translated as my generation war for example yeah okay that's making you smile so tell me tell me why generation war is, is it problematic? Gosh, yes, it is. It is problematic. Um, so for those who don't know, this Jim, is we a, just managed to get an academic, academic so problematic. Yeah, We've that's done very really well. That's really good. You've oh, got yeah. a bingo card. No, 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 for those who don't know, Generation War, I think it was called, called For Our Fathers, For Our Mothers it's, or something in Germany. It's Our Fathers, Our Mothers, yeah. It's a six-hour mini-series about five friends, of which two are brothers. I couldn't bring myself to watch it. And... It's pretty. I mean, it's it's pretty hard hitting stuff, and uh, inevitably one of them's Jewish. Um, two of them are girls. One of them ends up being a nurse. One of them ends up being a kind of floozy to an SS commander, but to try and save her Jewish boyfriend. The brothers. Um, one of them is a sort of you know is a, a wimp and doesn't like want to go, but becomes her becomes hard. The uh, the other one is a sort of slightly more idealistic kind of good sort who becomes a, an officer but gets disillusioned, has has a kind of mental breakdown, um, and ends up in a punishment battalion, and, and it doesn't end well for two of them one of whom is, is she guillotined or shot i can't remember but anyway uh, i mean it, but but it is pretty hard-hitting stuff yes but it sounds like a series of parables well there's all sorts of buts because also it sort of it's making them seem much uh, with the exception of the younger brother who becomes very very hard and it makes them seem much more kind of nice and sort of wannabe shoals rather than i think there were a lot of there were a lot of criticisms of that series but it was also criticized for i think for how kind of innocent those central characters yes. were being made to be and that's that's kind I suppose of that's the sort of what i'm driving at really it, it's the sort of yeah that they're apparent again it's quite a rede- it, it's attempting to mount quite a redemptive the yes. television can't help itself with, with redemption it, it, it's that's a like a you know that's what strike that's what 
stands out about programs like say the sopranos and mad men is that they abandon the idea of redemption whereas most standard television drama they're absolutely desperate to redeem everyone and uh, uh, characters characters no matter how dreadful they are in the end they're good people really but, but, whereas, but also you know, whereas uh, tony soprano and, and don draper in the end are, are ghastly shits and, and because because people are like that and there isn't a, there isn't an attempt to turn them to make them digestible and what that what that sounds like is an attempt to make the second world war a digestible learning experience from well, which we can all uh, grow you I know? mean it's it, but it's interesting because it's you know the title is I think it's it's our mothers our fathers that's already positioning this in a very specific way yeah, 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 yeah. in relation to a young generation that's watching it which is sort of misleading in the English title. There's more distance if you say, oh, Generation War, yeah, that's, not, that's got nothing to do with us. It's a terrible If you title. say it's our mothers, our fathers. Yeah. It's, it's really well, interesting. Because, because that, in, a, in, a, in its own way, you know, when Americans talk about the greatest generation, they, do, they mean their fathers, their mothers, their grandparents. Don't they? That's what, that's what yes, they're they saying. So uh, to, to actually call it Unzo, I mean, that's, that's quite on the nose, isn't it? And, I mean, what I would say and, about and, it. And, and it's, also, it's also that idea, poor old Germany got caught up in this thing. Poor old Germans got caught up in this sort of These thing. These are just innocents, pawns and a bigger thing. Hypnotised and beguiled by, by Nazism or whatever. So, that, so there was a sociological study in the early 2000s where they interviewed multiple generations of the same family and asked them, about war stories and what the second generation knew and what the third generation mm. knew and one of the guys who worked on this study said something to the effect of you know the the narrative that you get from a young generation in germany today is the nazis all arrived on a big spaceship and <laughs> then the third reich happened and then they got back on the spaceship they flew away and everyone was a bit embarrassed which is a good, I think, is yeah, a, a good, good metaphor very, very strong, for well, this, that an book, approach. Book, book, that graphic novel High Map that we looked at. Yes. Oh, a yeah, years ago, I'm writing about that. Yeah, which is really, really interesting. Nora Krug, where she where she basically pairs apart the stories the family have been telling themselves. Now, grandmother says, you know, we used to drive for this guy who was a who was a Jewish bloke, and I don't know what happened to him. And you know, Nora Krug investigates this and finds it's all everything that her family have been saying about what happened in the war is is nonsense. It's all. It's all ghosts and phantoms. And there is so much of that in contemporary German culture. Well, it's really interesting so also much. because um, a few years ago I did, um, I was involved with a BBC series called Lost Home Nazi Movies or Lost Home Movies of the Nazis oh, know, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. But anyway, the, the, the reason that came about in the first place is because what's happening is, is the kind of sort of current generation, kind of sort of two generations down, are going through their attics of their grandparents and finding all this stuff. Or their parents who've hidden it when they cleared out their parents' yeah. Yeah. houses. And they're suddenly going, what is all this stuff? Ooh, I don't want anything to do with it. And so they're handing it into an archive. And so there's these little film archives all over the place in Germany, <laughs> just stuffed full of film footage taken in the first years of the war when, the, when it was absolutely plentiful. There's loads and loads of these little mini movie cameras all over the place, and everyone was encouraged to do it. And of course, what you realise is, is a some of the some of this footage by you know we're not just talking all sort of SS types, we're talking kind of Wehrmacht and all sorts, is pretty horrific, frankly. And of course, it's being sent back home to be developed. So the idea that the vast majority of people haven't got a clue what's going on in the east or wherever, or wherever yeah. is just frankly ridiculous. Um, the original point I was going to make about Generation War 
for our fathers, for our mothers, or whatever it is, is that Blake Snyder, you know, the legendary uh, screen guru, screenwriting guru who wrote, wrote Save the Cat, the great guide to um, Hollywood screenwriting, I think he'd be very pleased with Generation War because he would say it would tick every single box. Yeah. And, I, and I think, that's, you know, that, that's... That's my point. It's television. It's, it's, it's it is drama television. shapes. Yes, and, and this, is, this is... But, but this also applies to something like Saving Private Ryan, where you've got something which, on one level, is incredibly realistic the depiction of action and all the rest of it, yet historically is incredibly problematic. Yeah, it's a simulacra of realism. It's that it's a, a, a suggestion of realism right. to, 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 in order to tell a story yes. rather than, and, and you know, stories are the great trap, aren't they? In, in all cultures. But because are, the action sequences are amazing. Yeah, yeah, in that, yeah. that's it. But it's, it's, like, it's like a kind of simulated authenticity. Yeah. There's, right. there's a, in, simulated authenticity. Right? I love that phrase. But... I mean, it's in, in my in my first book. I talked a lot about this German concept called. It's basically emotionally experienced history or felt history, which makes it sound What's like the history of felt. Gefühlte Geschichte. Gefühlte Geschichte. Nicht schlecht, oder? Oh, I love that. It just sounds um, better, doesn't it? Everything just sounds better. Sounds better, better. <laughs> it sounds better in German. Yeah, Certainly, better con- in German. concepts sound all sound better in German. Yeah, without, without a shadow of a doubt. Abstract nouns yeah. are strong in German. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Go on, carry yeah. on. Sorry. But this, you know, this 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 kind of emotionally experienced history. That there's a sort of turn towards this, right? So it's like we're saturated with facts. Now we want to know what it felt like. Which is, which is a symptom of the fact that we're, we're about to move into a post-witness era. We're about yeah. to not have survivors from the Holocaust. We're, we're not going to have eyewitnesses. We're not going to have new testimony. Yeah. And there seems to be but something... there's plenty of old testimony. There's plenty of old testimony. That no one's actually looked at. Yeah, of course. But I think there's a, there's a real sense within, within contemporary German culture. There's a real awareness of that shift about to happen. And there's, so there's this fascination with what it was like for people to live through it. So I think that's why films like that have such a resonance because they are giving you that kind of like bird's eye view, no, not bird's eye view, the opposite, worm's eye view of, you know, what it's like in the trenches, what it's like in the kind of nitty gritty moment of fighting. As best as cinema can with lots of noise and- And jump cuts and- Jump cuts and the visceral confusion of the image and all that sort of stuff. Because it can do it in this really sensory way, which is not the same as when you- Read a book. Yeah. You sit down and read a book. It was very noisy. Like that, yeah. That okay. okay, great. Yeah, fine. Yeah, I mean, that's where you want literature because then literature can create that sort of sensory yeah. um, realm. And after all, history has always occupied a semi-literary space anyway. I mean, yeah, of course. The, 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 this is the thing that, again, you know, history, the, the truth about history is it doesn't, it, it, academia sort of owns 5% of it, maybe. The Academy owns possibly 5% of it. 95% of it is, is off reservation, is in the culture, is culture. It, you know, is the, is the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, yeah. who we are, where we're from, what we're about, what our values are, in, in a way that, I mean, talking about the dissolution of the monasteries <laughs> on a primary source level, will never touch, yeah. can, can never touch. And you don't do Tudors, though, obviously. No, I don't do Tudors, no. <laughs> oh, I, thought, I thought we were going to do the Tudors today. <laughs> so disappointed. Moving swiftly on to Reformation. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we're not going to do Luther. But that's what I mean. That, I've that, been to Wittenberg. But that is that was so have I. And, I, and then I, and then I went somewhere else. <laughs> but the, but, the, but the, this is the this is I mean one of the this is the thing about history, isn't it? Is you know we've started on the White Rose, which because of its like, the iconic status of service sort of exists well away from history. Exists in its own exists in culture exists yeah. in imagination exists and is a story again it comes back to that if history is the story you tell yourself about yourself one of the things 
James, we've talked about this a lot because it's one of the things you, you've really pushed against is that the Second World War, the Battle of Britain, there's the story we like to tell ourselves about the Battle of Britain is this plucky little Britain, just a few pilots that were hanging on in there and somehow they, somehow we overwhelmed, we overwhelmed all, the mighty we overwhelmed Luftwaffe. We the mighty all-conquering Luftwaffe and we saw them off, Jim. Yeah. And that that's bears no relation to what happened yeah. at all. This is the real, the, I think, the interesting thing about history, as much as the things in history are interesting, where it sits in cultural space is the fascinating bit, yeah. right? Absolutely. And I don't know, I don't know if this is a tangent, but when I was doing the Chalk Valley History Festival, I grew up in Salisbury and I suddenly realised that my grandmother, my maternal grandmother was born the same year as Sophie Scholl. And so I was like, hmm, I've never really thought, you know, I've, I've written a book all about these resistance fighters. And actually, Sophie Scholl is the same age as my grandmother at all of these moments. So I looked into it and she was in the ATS and she was fire watching in Salisbury Cathedral Close no at way. the same time that Sophie Scholl is off doing the pamphlets. Goodness. And it's things like that where, you know, I have an absolutely, I would say, kind of classical British sense of World War II from, from growing up and from the kind of consumption of culture, of British culture. That, you know, these are the stories that we tell ourselves yeah. about the Brits in World mm. War II. And to have to then, you know, reposition that not only within the historical reality, but also a kind of reality of other perspectives on the same thing, I think is it's fascinating. It really is. It really is. But just go back to look who's back. For those who don't know, this is a, this is a common <laughs> novel. <laughs> no, because it seems to me it's such an important shift in, in, in German culture and, and, and at a time, I mean, when's it come out? 2013, I think it is. And the, 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 this, this novel yeah, I was, I was imagines... In, I was the, in Berlin when it came out. Right, and um, um, read read it in Berlin. Um, I read a translated copy in Berlin, and you know, would sit in the sit in the bar of the posh hotel reading it on a Kindle. Though, did you? So, I was going to say, did you put it inside? No, you know, something more respectable. <laughs> yeah, twenty shades, fifty shades of grey. <laughs> but, but but the novel is written in the first person by Hitler, and it, and and it imagines that he, you know, between the last days in the bunker to twenty thirteen, waking up in a car park, yep. it's just a blank to him, and he doesn't understand. He's got to sort of navigate his way around the kind of modern Germany, and it's very 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 funny. But it's also laughing at, at ordinary Germans as well, isn't it? That's the sort of the whole point. I mean, how did that happen and how has that been allowed to be so popular? I mean, hmm, I'm trying to work out what I think about this. I mean... I mean, what does that say about modern Germany? Does that say that they're, they're sort of slightly coming to terms with it? They're kind of relaxing about it a little bit? They're coming sort of a bit easier in their skin? I don't, I'm, I'm not sure relaxing is quite the right word. I mean... There was, during, during COVID, there was a lot of anxiety in Germany around the emergency laws that were brought in yeah. with lockdowns, right? And there was, a, there was a case of a young woman who uh, likened herself to Sophie Scholl at a sort of anti-lockdown rally. Um, she was called Jana aus Kassel, Jana from Kassel. And um, this blew up on the internet. It's, it's meme central. Right. So you can look it up. But there was a lot of anxiety around that. And even the foreign minister kind of waded into the Twitter war about it. And that was a good indication, I think, of actually how the, the sensitivities around the way that that period is talked about, they still exist. I, yeah. I don't, that's, what, that's why I'm slightly kind of hesitant about this word relaxing. But I think reunified Germany is very self, very reflective and very self-critical politically and culturally about that period yeah. 
we saw it in the refugee crisis, you know, Germany yeah. taking in more refugees than any other European country. I think we, we can interpret that as, you know, a direct result of, of Germany's mid 20th century history. So when something like Luke Hughes Back comes out, you know, it's, it's a provocation, but I think in a, in a good way. And I think that it, it, there's a space where it can be interpreted like that, right? That, that actually we should laugh at Hitler. Well, we, I mean, should be it, able, we should be able we should to... should be able to... I mean, uh, the White Rose mock Hitler in the, in the pamphlets, yeah. you know, there's a fine tradition of it. And, and it is, I mean, whether or not we're ready to, you know, the Germans are ready to laugh at themselves in the way that, that you're suggesting the book does, I don't know. It's certainly mocking the kind of media culture. Yes. Well, yes, because, I mean, the, if people don't know, I mean, this is... A, we'll go straight into a spoiler. So this, the Hitler wakes up basically at the side of the Führer bunker, goes over to a newsstand, makes friends with a guy on the newsstand, and he's in his uniform, and they think he's hilarious because he's carrying on like Hitler, and, they th- and he becomes a comedian, and he becomes famous on the telly, and he ends up generating a political movement around him, is the, is the plot of the book. Isn't it? Did, no, no, I was just thinking, Reddit, didn't, Reddit. Richard, didn't Richard Herring grow a Richard Herring certainly Hitler did, moustache Hitler, and like yes, wander did. around? Did yes, he, he did that for a I year. Was just one, yes, was, I just hadn't good, really put those two things together. Richard's a good friend of mine. And uh, for one year, he decided, and, and he, whenever anyone asked him what the moustache was, he goes, it's a Charlie Chaplin moustache. And they go, no, it's not it's a Hitler moustache, mate. He goes, no, it's a Charlie Chaplin moustache. I've grown a Charlie Chaplin moustache. You know, these moustaches were, were really, really fashionable, especially on comedians. And he did a whole show about it. He had a Hitler tash for a year. And the poster for that show is basically one of those sort of it's one of those sort of Hitler portraits of him looking sort of uh, stern and um, a man of destiny one of those pictures it's worth looking up and he, he and he went lived in Shepherd's Bush and would go to the shops with this with the Hitler moustache and his whole thing was to see it's, is it time yet for us to be able to laugh at this moustache or even just wear this moustache what are the consequences and he had an awful, awful lot of people who wanted to smash his face in yeah. I mean it's, but, so I think the answer is, is no they're not ready well they, they weren't ready here in, in London in, I mean that was about that may be 20 years ago I mean the thing is, is Rich at that stage was doing these you know the show the year before he went on 50 dates and wrote about it so, oh. so you know he was, he was trying that was the obvious next step exactly the obvious <laughs> next step was growing it in the moustache <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, well, um, Alex, thank you so much for oh, fascinating hour. Um, and because I mean, before you got here, Jim, we we, we touched on you know we we've spoken to Katya a lot, Katya Hoyer, who who you know her thing is that she's writing about Germany, not in Germany, and that she feels that gives her room for room for manoeuvre. Yes. But that in itself is an interesting idea because are there German? Is there a, an Auslander Englandist? Is there someone in Germany writing about British culture? Because David Edgerton, he makes a really interesting point about the history of the Second World War. He says, at some point, we need British historians have got to start writing about Britain as though it's a foreign country. as though So you talk about nationalism in, a, in the context of nationalism as we understand it, rather than filtered through party politics, British party politics. And you've got to look, why can't we look at the Second World War in the way that we examine the Soviet Second World War or the, British Sec- the German Second World War? Why aren't we doing that? When can that happen? So is there a German historian? Is there, is there, do you have a German equivalent? You know, an Auslander Englandist or whatever. Someone who's looking called. at, you know, British, British leaflets yeah. dropped on the... And, and then, and saying, how do they relate to Dad's army? You know? <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, I hope so. <laughs> well, I hope so because it's that this element of detachment yeah. that, that you don't that you that you don't have a horse in the race, as it were, in in, in terms of German culture, gives you this freedom of manoeuvre. Yeah. I think there's I think there is, and this has been said to us about the White Rose Project and the work the students is, are doing. There's a kind of a lightness that comes with that distance yeah. that you that you can approach the history without a certain amount of baggage that you might otherwise have and i think it is that that always being really critical right always always interrogating everything and every aspect and and taking nothing for granted so that you know what's the point of doing all this well so that we presumably so that we learn something and the white rose wanted to change the world you know so maybe we can learn a bit about that brilliant well thank you so much thanks everyone for listening we hope you have a merry in between christmas and new year time and a prosperous 2024 cheerio everyone bye bye bye